This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's impossible to overstate the importance of finding out what principles you want to live your life by and seeing how you can integrate those into your life. Welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm Jordan Harbinger, and I'm here with producer Jason DeFilippo. On this episode, we're talking with Paul Gilmartin. He's the host and producer of the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast. Funny name for a really introspective and interesting podcast. He's known for brutal honesty, authenticity, and transparency. It's a bit outside our usual fare today, but this is informative nonetheless and an enjoyable, well, in its own way, conversation. We'll explore the ripple effect that a traumatic childhood can have on the life of an adult and what we might do to move forward from this. And we'll discover the role that social intelligence and a code of ethics plays in guiding behavior that might otherwise be clouded by emotion. There's a lot here, a lot of it is very personal to Paul. And because of that, is much more useful than generalities and sort of general self-help tips and advice. So enjoy this episode with Paul Gilmartin. And of course, we have the worksheets for today's episode in the show notes, so you can make sure you solidify your understanding of the key takeaways here today. That link is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. Paul, thanks for coming back on the show, man. It has been several years, and I'd like to think we're a better place now. Let's both tell ourselves that. Yes. I feel like it's really easy to look back on old work and say, that was crap. You're a comedian. Do you do that to yourself all the time? I feel like I do that to myself all the time. It's so painful sometimes to go back and listen to old shows. It kills me because I edit them. I have to do it. I actually started coming up with a character in the podcast called Mean DJ Voice, which was the voice in my head when I would be recording that was just shouting at me, oh, this is shit. What are you doing? This is awful. Nobody cares about this. And so I started introducing the listeners to this voice in my head and almost everybody related because almost everybody has a mean DJ voice in their head. The reason I call it mean DJ voice is because he talks like he's from the quad cities. God, you are terrible. Who's going to listen to this? I think I have negative voices here and there, but it doesn't sound like a strip club DJ like yours does. Yeah, mine mine does, I, and I don't know why. Where do those come from? Do we know? One, I think it comes from growing up in a critical household or where there wasn't enough attention, and I think it comes from the belief that we can shame ourselves into becoming a better person, which is one of the biggest myths around. I've never seen somebody beat themselves up into being a happy person. That's an interesting point because I think a lot of us actually do that. I don't know if we're thinking, if I beat myself up enough, I'll be better. 
I think we're only thinking short term, right? Like, well, if I just focus harder, focus, Shelly, focus, right? Get it done. You're here to compete. You're here to kick ass, right? And then after a while, you've kind of just gotten done telling yourself all these things that you're not doing right over and over again. Those voices and those habits maybe do come from our parents, but I also think that people who had good parents also are hard on themselves. I don't think we can just automatically say, well, everybody who beats themselves up had crap parents, had a tough childhood. Absolutely not. And I think the culture that we grow up in has something to do with it too, because we value, you know, because we're all about the market and being number one and winning. But, you know, is there a price to pay for that? Are you sacrificing peace of mind to treat everything as if it's a competition where you have to be the alpha? And I think it does take a toll because it's hard to relax sometimes. You know, you meet people that dominate in all areas of their lives. They're not the most chill people. For me, the whole reason that I work hard when I do work hard is because I want to be able to relax and enjoy my life. And for me, the biggest struggle in life is finding that balance between am I giving my professional life my best effort and do I have other parts of my life that aren't being degraded by this? And I don't know about you, man, but that's a tough battle for me. That is interesting. I think that that's probably something a lot of people share. Yeah. Having gone through depression and dealt with my alcoholism and drug addiction and all of these other things, it has forced me to look at the way I view myself and the world because I had to do it to live. I was going to kill myself. It literally killed myself. I went to see a psychiatrist because I was suicidal. And it was when I was hosting a TV show. You know, I was in TV Guide. I was on People Magazine. And I thought about killing myself 50 times a day. And I thought, what's the matter with me? Everybody's telling me, you know, you have a life that I'm, that I'm jealous of. These were the dreams I'd set out to achieve when I was a kid. And I couldn't understand why I was so miserable. And what I came to find out was, A, I was an alcoholic and I needed help, so I started going to support groups. But in there, they cracked open my ego. And I came to find out that my view of the world was based so much in self that I wasn't experiencing real human connection. I was dealing with everything as if I was working an angle to always get what I wanted. But I was never putting myself in other people's shoes and thinking, what is it like to experience me? What might this person want? How might I help this person? Because I had always thought that to help you was to take away from me unless it obviously benefited me. And that's one of the biggest myths that degrades people's lives, not only mentally, but emotionally and spiritually. Does that make any sense? It does. How do you think that you formed that belief system? And actually, how do you think that you got rid of it? Or what would you recommend to people who are struggling with that? Because I think there's a lot of people out there who were raised in such a way or have developed such a personality that they think that they really only can think about what's in it for them. And they build these walls around themselves that later on lead to further isolation and problems. Yeah. How many people have you seen that are icons in their industry whose marriages are terrible, who have no relationship with their children? And not that the two are mutually exclusive, but to me, it's a matter of balance and sometimes being willing to maybe sacrifice a little bit on the professional side 
to maintain stuff on the personal side, or maybe there are examples where it isn't a zero sum thing. But for me, I had to go to support groups. I'm a big fan of 12 step groups because they focus on the spiritual aspect of our lives. And by that, I don't mean religious. I mean interpersonal relationships and really their principled programs for daily living. It's leading a principled life so that you're making your decisions based on what is the right thing to do here instead of what can I get away with or what is my fear telling me to do? Because I was always guided by what my fear would tell me. My fear would distort reality to such a point that I would make such terrible decisions, the very thing I was afraid of would actually come true because I would make such bad decisions trying to avoid that fear. It wouldn't happen right away. My fear was that if I wasn't special in my industry, if I didn't get recognition, then I would be, and this is mostly subconscious, I would be forgotten, I would be left behind, and I would die lonely. Well, I started achieving all this stuff in my industry, and I didn't nurture relationships. I was all about me. I was all about making money and what are you doing for me? And I began to get lonely and getting near death to where I wanted to die. The very thing I thought that pursuing success relentlessly and single-mindedly would avoid was the very thing that brought me to the fear that I was trying to avoid. And what I found out is if you are passionate about what you do for a living, if you're driven by something beyond money, the money will come. I do this podcast that I do and I started it not to make money. I started it because I felt like it's something that the world needed and I'm passionate about it. So it doesn't feel like work. It's a lot of it is just really a result of what I had to learn in support groups to stay alive. I am not wired to think about other people. I am not wired to relax. I am wired to think about myself in a state of fear and selfishness. Obviously, you're not a selfish, horrible person, right? And a lot of people love you and love your work and you do a lot of things that are in many ways massive works of care for others. Your show being one of them, the Mental Illness Happy Hour podcast being one of them. And sure, it does stuff for you, but you could also just record it and never release it. Clearly, the way that you view yourself and the way that other people view you are in many ways at odds with one another. You've developed this particular system of thought for yourself for a reason. Would you wanna tell us why that is? Because that's a pretty damning indictment of yourself. It's not of who I am. It's my default in the absence of living a principled life. That is who I will go back to being. Now, was I that way, you know, before I started going to support groups? Was I that way every minute of every day? Of course not. You know, in many ways, I could be a caring, generous person if it was convenient for me. If it wasn't convenient for me, if you stood between me and what my fear was telling me I had to get, you were going to get steamrolled. And there was no question about what was the right thing to do. The question was, what can I get away with? Or what is my fear telling me is going to happen if I don't steamroll this person? And when you begin to add up all of those little moral blocking it out of your mind moments, 
it begins to take a toll on your psyche because it's hard, and this is going to sound new agey, but it's hard to love yourself when you don't love other people. I simply can't. My self-esteem plummets when I'm not doing esteemable acts, and I'm not talking about me being Mother Teresa. I'm talking about little things, using my turn signal, returning my shopping cart, not chasing somebody when they cut me off on the freeway, you know, little things, telling the truth, showing up on time, keeping my word, apologizing when I'm wrong. It's really those things and getting together with other people who struggle with the things that I struggle with a couple of times a week, talking about our day, talking about our struggles and that vulnerability is what keeps that cracked open so that I can stay in touch with that part of myself, that spiritual, moral, ethical, whatever you want to call it. If I don't stay in touch with that part of myself, the intellectual lizard brain part of myself will take over and will wind up making my worst fears come true, which is that I will feel isolated, maybe incredibly wealthy, who knows, but certainly on my way to death because I'm an addict and I don't know how to do, left to my own devices, I don't know how to do five. I do one or I do 10. And I could give you instances after instances of where I find that I like something and I run the wheels off it. And it's just how I'm wired. It's how addicts are wired. You know, this isn't for everybody, but I'll tell you this, Jordan, there is an epidemic of workaholism in capitalistic societies. And I don't think there's any way around it, but I think what we can do if we consider ourselves workaholics is to say, what can I do to bring some balance into my life? You know, it doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your career and go be a monk and give all your money away. It means dealing with the fears in your brain that tell you if you don't work a 16-hour day, you're a failure or you're lazy or whatever. It involves nuance. And man, I don't do nuance naturally. That's why I need support groups. How did you then develop a sense of ethics, meaning, purpose, and things like that? Because it seems like that state you just described was a semi-permanent, and I don't mean can never change, I just mean it had a lot of inertia from the sound of it, set of emotions that just really is best described simply as just permanent not giving a rat's ass about anything. How little do you care at that point, right? Where you just think, what's the point of returning my shopping cart? And it's not just a bad habit, it's a way of life. How did you eventually turn the ship? Uh, it took time. A lot of people think 12-step groups are a religion. They're not. They may talk about a higher power or this or that, but it's really the principles of of being a good person that you're trying to connect to. And wherever you believe those emanate from, you can call it your higher power. For a lot of people, it's support groups themselves. You know, it could be the ocean or the sun or, you know, for me, it's where does love come from? Where does compassion come from? You know, it's an energy. It must come from someplace in the universe. And so I just, I picture that because everybody has a God, a higher power. It might be money. It might be sex. It's what gets you up in the morning. It's what drives you. And I believe that when we don't have something driving us, getting us out of bed, then our spirit dies and we get suicidal and we want our body to go with it. And that's what was happening to me because my God 
for lack of a better word, had been pleasure, my own pleasure. Seeking pleasure for yourself is not a bad thing, but when you are doing it in such a lopsided way, it throws your life out of balance and your spirit starts to die. I had to learn it through the experience of other people in these support groups, hearing them share their story, having them mentor me. You know, a really, really good book is called A New Earth by Eckhart Tolle. And that book really opened my eyes as to how my brain can sabotage me with its fear and irrational thinking. It's a little new agey. Some of the terms in there I rolled my eyes at when I first read it, but the truths that he writes about are profound. And it's a dense book. It's like a book that I will read maybe a paragraph in the morning and that's it. He throws some thoughts in there, some philosophies and ways of looking at life and ourselves and others that you need to kind of sit and think about it after you read it. But it's a book that really helps chill me out to start my day and come from a place of rather than fear and survival, come from a place of I am enough as I am right now. I've got a lot of abundance in my life. And if I live a principled life, things are going to have a way of working out. And I have discovered from being in my support groups that they do. We may not get what we want in the short run, but I've discovered we get, when we lead a principled life, we get what we need in the long run. Some of the things that I thought were the biggest you know, quote unquote disasters or mistakes had to happen for something better and more suited to my authentic self that they needed to happen for that second, better, more authentic moment to happen. For instance, my TV career going away as dinner and a movie was starting to wind down. I didn't have much sway in the industry. People weren't knocking my door down. And I also honestly wasn't that passionate anymore about being on TV. I didn't like all the creative compromises you had to do. And when I went off my meds, became suicidal, was fooled by my depression, realized, oh my God, I've been fooled by my depression, went back on my meds. I thought somebody should do a podcast about this because nobody understands. Uh, I shouldn't say nobody understands. A lot of people don't understand how conniving mental illness can be. So I started doing the podcast, not as a, I'm done with TV, but if TV hadn't sputtered out, I wouldn't have put all the effort I did into my podcast, which then a year later took off and became the thing that I make my living at today. I see instances over and over and over again, where when we do the principled thing, And the thing that we're passionate about, not from a place of ego, but from a place of, I know this is making a difference. There's some type of meaning and purpose in it beyond our own self-aggrandizement. I've just seen it over and over again in my life and other people's lives that there's this authenticity that is inherently relaxing that comes about. It's hard to put into words. Does it, am I making sense? This does make sense. It actually sounds like the difference between authentic and hubristic pride, which is something that Jessica Tracy came on the show and talked about a few months back, which is pride that comes from intrinsic motivation will always beat pride that comes from, oh, you're that guy from TV, which just leaves you in many ways feeling emptier than it did before because it didn't fill the hole that you had that you thought pride would fill. And 
you realize it's so empty in itself because it's not about something necessarily that you've done or created. You feel like you're owed that and it's never enough. Yes, perfectly. You summed it up perfectly. The one that's based in hubris is about look at me and the other one is about doing the right thing and this is who I am, the higher version of me. This is who I am. This is who I was meant to be, you know, if you believe in destiny. And when you believe that you are on the path you're meant to be on because it feels principled, God, there's no better muscle relaxer in the world. I have so much peace in my life. I make less money than I did when I was in TV, but I love what I do. I have enough money. I love money. I'd love to be a billionaire, but I don't want to give up peace to do the things that I think I would need to do to be a billionaire. So while, yes, money is a practical concern and we all have to think about money and have goals, et cetera, et cetera, principles being our guide to me is the most important thing, but that involves faith. It involves faith that we're not going to be the sucker that's getting stepped on or left behind for doing the right thing. And that's a really hard voice to overcome. You're listening to The Art of Charm with our guest, Paul Gilmartin. So stick around and we'll get right back to the show after these important messages. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. To learn more about our sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. For now, let's get back to Jordan and Paul Gilmartin. How did you develop a healthier set of tools to work with here? Because you mentioned this earlier in the show that you had a rough childhood, so you didn't really have the dynamic of emotionally healthy relationships, emotionally healthy parents, familial, platonic relationships growing up, without that framework, where do you begin? Because there are people listening right now, I'm sure, that think the reason I can't do X is because I don't have this particular framework. And yet, there's a lot of counterexamples to this, but very rarely does anybody say, well, actually, this is how you get out of it. Most people just say, well, you know, I just worked hard and dot, 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 multi-million dollar jet company or whatever. Well, there's, there's no one particular way, but I can tell you this, trying to do it by yourself is like trying to give yourself a haircut or see the back of your head. Now, you need other people to do it. And most of us view asking for help as a sign of weakness or failure. No, it's not. You know, if you think of life as a series of battles that we wage internally, well, if you're losing that, because you're not experiencing the peace or the fulfillment that you want, why wouldn't you call in a general or reinforcements to do that? That's not help. That's a smart tactician that would do that. I had to be faced with putting a gun in my mouth to ask for help. That's how much I don't want to ask for help. But because I had to do that, I've learned the benefits of it. And today, I don't mind doing it. My best friends are people that I met in support groups, and it's not an intellectual pursuit. Spirituality, in my experience, is a muscle. It is a muscle that it's like going to the gym. Leading a principled life for me is like going to the gym. If I start slacking off, you know, I stop returning that shopping cart, stop using the signal, you know, I start, uh, you know, fudging the truth a little bit. I start showing up late. It's a gym for me. And I personally, I need support groups to keep me fit because left to my own devices solo, I will sit in my recliner and watch Netflix and cut corners and not let people in and not help people. That's been the other part that has been so good for my self-esteem and has brought me so much peace is somebody else coming into a support group and giving them my phone number and saying, hey, you know, let's go have coffee tomorrow. You seem like you're in a tough spot. And just talking with them, sometimes giving them advice, uh, sometimes sharing my own story. 
But here are things that I cannot live without in my life. Vulnerability, connection, honesty, and a boundary of not allowing toxic people into my life. Having done the podcast for six years, one of the biggest things I see that destroys people's lives is not understanding the difference between healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing emotion. Before I got into support groups, I didn't even know what I was feeling. I was so used to numbing myself with porn and alcohol, I couldn't even begin to identify what I was feeling. When I stopped numbing myself with those things, I could feel in my body what I thought of other people. And I began to listen to that. And I began to say, you know, I get a stomachache every time I'm around that person. Why do I keep doing it? I'm going to take a break from that. Wow, I feel so much better not putting up with that person's abuse. I think I'm going to continue to not be around that person. If I hadn't unnumbed myself by dealing with my addictions, I would have never been able to get to that place. So it's a process. That's interesting because this cycle seems so self-reinforcing, right? You have a bunch of addictions and you're around a bunch of other people with those similar problems. And then since you're numbing yourself with those addictions, you stay around those people. And it's hard to say, is it the substances that are bringing you down or is it the company that you keep? And the answer is both, right? But you really can't shake one without shaking the other. There's a momentum. There's both an upward momentum to leading a principled life and finding peace. Because when you're at peace, it's much easier to make a principled decision. When you're in fear, that's when it's hard to make a principled decision. There's an upward momentum to that. And then there's also a downward momentum to making choices based in fear. Because then we do that, it usually backfires. We get in more fear and we make more desperate decisions. So that's why the gym aspect of leading a principled life is so important because then I don't allow myself to get to that desperate place where I'm not going to make the right decision. How does this stem from childhood trauma and neglect? I know you wanted to discuss pre-show a little bit about your childhood using that as a sort of textbook example here because the ripple effect from not having the proper pattern set up as a kid clearly shows through towards adulthood, but it seems like you don't grow up thinking, well, you know, I had these bad patterns installed as a youth, so this is gonna lead to all these problems. You really can only see this in hindsight. Is that accurate? Yeah, and my parents did not make me an addict, that I believe it's a genetic thing. That being said, I grew up where healthy coping mechanisms weren't modeled for me. They weren't modeled for my parents either. So in the absence of that, we're going to do what we see other people doing, which with my mom was, you know, manipulating people, also charming them to get what they want. And with my dad, I saw somebody who was isolated at the end of the couch. I didn't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to open up to people. I just knew that if I wanted people to like me, I had to be who I thought they needed me to be instead of saying, I'm going to be my authentic self. and they can take it or leave it. I was decades away from even knowing what my authentic self is. And I'm still discovering what my authentic self is. There was also trauma that I think affected my ability to be intimate. And that I don't believe I was born genetically with. You know, my mom did not have boundaries and treated me like a spouse in many ways. There was some 
creepy kind of quasi-sexual stuff that went on that really, really screwed me up for a number of years until I went to another support group for uh, people that struggle with intimacy and addiction to porn and stuff like that. And that's where another layer came came off. And I f- now feel more authentic. So I had to examine that stuff. I had to examine how I let that define how I felt about myself. Because a lot of kids, you know, when stuff is done to them by a parent, they will usually blame themselves. It is less scary for a child to say, you know, I deserved that than I'm in the care of somebody who is not safe. Many of us will go to our graves defending the person that abused us because that is still less scary than saying I was alone in my childhood. You know, I was raised in a house that wasn't safe and I was taken advantage of. That's a hard thing to say. Sure. The struggles that survivors deal with all the time, they lead in many ways, or they can lead a socially and professionally anorexic life, as you put it. Tell us about what that means, because for somebody who grew up with a pretty vanilla childhood, like myself, I guess I don't know what that means. People who have experienced sexual or emotional trauma can tend to deal with it in one of two ways, by becoming overly promiscuous or withdrawing and becoming sexually or socially anorexic and oftentimes going back and forth between the two. A lot of times you'll see somebody gets raped. They go on a bender of promiscuity in a subconscious way of trying to take control of their sexuality back. And sadly, a lot of survivors of sexual trauma will then blame themselves and say, oh yeah, see here, you know, this means that I'm dirty or whatever. Man, doing this podcast for six years, I have learned that our brains are so complicated, but there are these patterns that are revealed that show that we are all tied together and so similar that we're not alone. Whatever it is that we're going through, we are not alone. The solution is really finding people that understand us so that we can get real with them, get vulnerable, and find out the truth. Sometimes we don't even know what the truth is until it comes out of our mouth. And if I don't have safe people around me, I can't get to that quiet place where the truth can come out of my mouth. One question that I get all the time that I've always struggled with answering on the show or in fan mail and things like that is a lot of people write to me and they say that they're lazy, right? They're looking at their professionally or socially anorexic life, as you put it, and they say, you know, I'm just really lazy. And the sort of coaching answer is, you're not lazy, it's just you're afraid to fail. And that's often true, so I don't wanna totally poo-poo that, but there's the lack of passion or some type of negative self-belief, perfectionism, fear of the unknown, that stuff all clumps together. And I think that these people are not just lying to themselves about being lazy. I think that that's what that must feel like at some level. Did you experience this? Oh my God, I still experience. I look at somebody like you and, and I think, why can't I be more like him? He's so organized. You sent the interview thing. You know, you go to this thing and you fill this thing out and you do that. I'm like, I don't do any of that. I'm such a screw up. There's nuance in it. What works for one person may not work for another person. It's like passion, that thing that you touched on. I don't know some days if I'm being lazy or if I'm leading a balanced life. So I have to talk to friends about it. 
It's one of the reasons why I wanted to do a podcast with you is because I know there are things that I can learn from you that can help improve the way I go about expanding the podcast because my default is to pull away for fear of failure. But I also have to be on guard that I'm not trying to push myself into being somebody that isn't authentic to who I am. It's hard to know. What does that mean, though, in that way, that you don't want to be inauthentic, but also a skill, for example, like organization or having a scheduling program, which is, I think, what you were mentioning before. And we can thank my wife for that. I had nothing to do with that, that automated stuff. But I don't want people to think, oh, well, you know, I just need to be the way I am because that's authentic. What's the difference between, okay, I'm learning to improve on something and, okay, now I'm moving into a place that's inauthentic? Because I I don't want people to go, oh, crap, I can't improve or I'm not being authentic or, oh, I can't work on this certain set of skills because that's inauthentic somehow. I don't want people to go down that road. I know that's not what you're saying. No, I'm not, but I can see how that could be construed that way. You know what I think it is? Try things and see if it works for you. And if it feels like it doesn't work for you, maybe ask yourself, what is it about this that isn't working for me? And then maybe you'll have your answer as to whether or not it feels authentic. For instance, right now, I'm trying a thing that I saw a friend of mine doing, which is he has an Excel grid and he writes a list of goals daily and weekly. And I thought, you know what? I would like to do that because all I've ever had is a crappy little to-do list that I lose that has things on it and I'll cross them off and I'll find one from six months ago and go, yay, I actually did accomplish a lot of those things or boo, I didn't do any of them. And so I'm going to try this thing and I'll find out if it's working for me. I'm four days into it and so far so good. I've been pretty consistent in doing it. So I'll find out. I love black and white thinking. It's my default to go to, but it is not good for our lives. Black and white thinking When you find yourself saying never and always, that's usually a sign that you're veering into black and white thinking, which for me is very problematic. I want things to be clearly defined. It's almost like emotional OCD, you know? I don't like shades of gray except in my movies. I don't like nuance in my life because it's hard. It's harder to navigate, and correct me where I'm wrong here, you're doing a lot of this manually, right? Because you didn't grow up with these patterns. So doing it manually, it's easier to go binary. This is working, this isn't working. Go left or go right. But when there's nuance, you're like, shit, there's not a fork in the road, there's eight paths, and they're all kind of the same. Which one do I do? So it slows you down, and then it makes you think about it, which then gets you stuck in the mud sometimes. And then it usually involves me having to run things by other people, which I inherently have not liked doing because that involves being vulnerable, asking for help. That makes me feel weak. But I know I've been in support groups long enough to know that's not a sign of weakness. That's a sign of strength. That's a sign of a man. A real man is somebody who can recognize when he needs to call in reinforcements and do that, and humble himself by doing that. And it saved my life. It's given me a life that I love. But it's still a daily struggle for me to do it. It's why I will continue to go to support groups for the rest of my life. One, because I love the people in there. They're my best friends. But two, I need to talk about what's going on with me. Otherwise, my perspective will get warped in isolation. 
I've met very few people that isolate that don't have warped perspectives on themselves or the world. The extremist example would be the Unabomber, but that's kind of where we go, man. We like will veer towards returning the shopping cart or the Unabomber. <laughs> you know, that's kind of those are the two ways I drift. Fingers off that skip button. We'll be right back with more from Paul Gilmartin after these brief announcements. Lennon and McCartney, Jagger and Richards, Watson and Crick, AJ and Johnny. What about the perfect duo when it comes to growing your business? Well, that's you and Shopify. That's right, Johnny. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling your own fire merch or promoting your productivity programs, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And sell more with less effort Thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. What I love about Shopify is no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control and take your business to the next level. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. And Shopify is the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. And AJ, you don't have to just sell your stuff anymore. With Shopify Collective, you can curate products to sell from the brands that you love, giving your customers more variety and your business more sales. Shopify is your no-excuses business partner. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash charm. Go to shopify.com slash charm now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash charm. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you for listening and supporting The Art of Charm. Your support keeps us on the air. For a list of all the discounts from our amazing sponsors, visit theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. Now for the conclusion of our interview with Paul Gilmartin. So it seems like developing the ethics and things that you had mentioned earlier are a great way to then guide one's behavior, right? You can almost create this flowchart-like way that you would react in your daily life to try to follow a code of ethics or behavior that you know has worked for you in the past. Does that make sense so far? So is that something that you've found value in or am I overthinking this one for you? Oh, no. It's impossible to overstate the importance of finding out what principles you want to live your life by 
and seeing how you can integrate those into your life. And for me, the three biggest questions I ask myself as I go throughout my day, when a situation arrives, I ask myself, is this anything that I have control over? And if it isn't, I surrender to it. You know, for instance, rush hour traffic. I no longer get mad in rush hour traffic. I have no control over it. I might as well enjoy myself. The second question is, if I do have control over it, what is the right thing to do here? What is the ethical or principled thing to do here? The answer is usually very apparent, but sometimes it's an answer that sends fear into my brain, like fear of, oh, you're going to have to talk to somebody, or you might have to drive across town and give somebody a ride, or you might have to do this. Now, that can also sometimes veer into codependence which is a different thing because then we're doing what we think is the right thing. We're telling ourselves it's the right thing, but we're really doing it because we don't want somebody to be mad at us or we want something later from them. So that's a completely different thing. But for me, it's what is the right thing to do here? For instance, this is a great barometer of where I'm at spiritually in my life when this can happen. I'm driving, somebody cuts me off. The old me would have followed them to the light challenged them to a fight, or if they were bigger than me, I would have stared straight ahead and pretended it never happened. Today, what happens is if somebody cuts me off, I feel a flash of anger. I want to do something, honk my horn, or I probably do honk my horn. But in that moment, I say, what is the right thing to do here? Do I have any control over whether or not that person cuts me off? No, I don't. Okay. Then what is the right thing to do? The right thing is not to chase this person to their house and tell them what I think of them. The right thing is to see that I have been that person before and that I was in fear when I was that person and that I should be grateful that I'm not that person anymore. And in that moment, I'm able to go from anger to gratitude in a pretty short amount of time. And that to me is a miracle to be able to experience peace and to not take other people's stuff personally. That's been one of the biggest things in my life is to see other people as sick human beings like I am. And I don't mean that in a demeaning way. I mean, you know, we're all flawed. We're all beautiful, flawed children of God, the universe, whatever you want to call it. When I can get to those moments where I can let other people make their own mistakes and not take it personally. Now, if that guy kept cutting me off, it'd be a different conversation. I'm not sure what I would do then, but To surrender to the things that you have control over, that is not the same thing as making yourself into a doormat. And I think a lot of us, especially men, struggle to find the nuance in that. We get black or white with that. Yeah, I can see that happening quite clearly for a lot of us, especially if we haven't had to deal with this before or if we're just starting to deal with these types of situations ourselves. It's more complex than a lot of us are used to. And if we're suffering from or dealing with an addiction or some sort of mental illness of some kind, dealing with this stuff head on is totally new for us. And you're sitting there going, is this right? This is not as comfortable. Is this something that everyone does? It's kind of like when you go to the gym for the first time in years or the first time ever, you're just thinking, why does anyone do this? This must not be the way (laughs) you're supposed to do this, right? You go for a jog and you're like, what the, no one likes this, I'm doing this wrong. This is terrible. Absolutely. And that's when I think it's helpful to be in a support group because then you can call your friend up and go, God, you know, I did the right thing, but it just, 
it didn't feel right. It's like I wanted to punch that guy or I wanted to. And then your friend can weigh in and say, well, you know, maybe you're still taking it personally. You know, maybe there's a part of you that feels like you are weak because you did that. Let's talk about that. And then who knows, maybe you'll say, yeah, you know, my brother used to pick on me. And all of a sudden you're letting that out. All I know is if we don't talk about our emotions, if we don't figure out healthy and unhealthy ways of expressing them, it degrades our life. It degrades our life. For me, there are areas in my life that are great barometers for where I'm at emotionally, mentally, spiritually in my life. I play hockey three times a week. And it lets me know almost instantly where I'm at, how I react when somebody cheap shots me or a ref makes a terrible call. I used to get in fights all the time. I would get suspended. I took other people's stuff so personally. It was an effort for me to begin to see what I had control over in the game and what I didn't. And how to allow other people to be their own flawed human beings with their own path and not be a doormat. And there's nuance in that. But I can tell you what I don't do anymore is I don't scream at the referee with spit flying out of my face. You, you mean the television, right? Or are you doing this at like kids soccer games? Because one is definitely scarier than the other. Uh, no, I'm talking about in hockey games I'm playing in. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Oh, yeah. Like screaming at the ref, getting tossed, standing on the other side of the glass after getting tossed and still yelling at the guy. That is who I used to be because I took it all personally. I took his bad call personally. To be fair, though, like that's hockey stuff too, right? Yes, but there's a degree. There's getting upset that this guy is, quote unquote, ruining your game. And then there's realizing that you can't control what kind of a ref this guy is. You can only control your reaction to him. So what I do now is I will skate up to him and I'll say, wow, man, I got to tell you, I didn't see the same thing that you did. I just want to let you know because it's getting really frustrating. It feels like a lot of the calls are going against us. Refs can handle that. What they can handle is, and I've done this, inviting them to come to Lens Crafters with me so that I can buy them glasses. That's where I go. If I'm not going to support groups, I'm not trying to lead a principled life. I hope I'm not portraying myself as some type of saint. I screw up every day. Every day I fall short of something, but it's the seeking in trying to be a better person, a more principled person, and also forgiving myself when I fall short. That's really important part of this. And I learn all of this in support groups and I'm reminded of it in support groups. And I hate to keep harping on that, but it saved my life. That in therapy and cutting toxic people out of my life, all of those things saved me. But you don't have to sacrifice your masculine alpha energy. I still have that, man. I can tap into that whenever I want. I love playing hockey and playing hard, as hard as I can, playing physical, colliding, there are games when the refs really let us play, and I mean, it gets really physical. And the games where we are all playing as hard as we can, but nobody's getting cheap and everybody's shaking hands at the end, that to me is like life at its best. We're giving it our best effort, but we're keeping things in perspective, and it's all in balance, and nobody's disrespecting each other. 
How do you find the support groups that you've been talking about? Are there any tips on finding a group? Because I think a lot of people go, hmm, I never thought about this before, but maybe I could use one because I am dealing with some stuff. And then they go to one and it's just like so strange. It's not for them. And they go, oh, that's what these are like. Ah, I knew these weren't for me. I'm out of here. That's a really good question. Well, you can't judge an entire support group by one particular meeting. There's lots of individual meetings that I've been to where I'm like, oh, I will never go back to that group of people again. You know, it's just because people go to a support group doesn't mean they are representative of that support group, which is why I suggest trying a bunch of different meetings of a particular one. If there's an addiction you're dealing with, you know, go online. There's a great website called gethelp.org. I'm a huge fan of 12-step ones. There's probably 500 different 12-step ones. There are ones where if you don't have an addiction, it is based on having grown up in a household where there was dysfunction. There are some for that. There are ones for mental illness, you know, bipolar or for being the loved one of somebody with bipolar or other mental illnesses. NAMI.org is a great one for finding support group meetings around mental illnesses. Try a bunch. Don't let one individual meeting decide whether or not that whole thing is for you. Try a half dozen. And if a half dozen suck and you're like, I don't like this, I think you've given it probably a good shot. A lot of people might say, all right, this isn't for me because I went to one. And just like different kinds of pizza, I mean, you got a podcast about mental health. You got a page on your site with all these resources? We can just link to that. I do. There are also more. I think gethelp.org probably has even more. It was founded by a couple whose child died of an overdose. That to me is like such a great example of somebody going through something difficult and being able to draw meaning and purpose from it. That to me is like life at its finest, is when you can pull a present out of a pile of shit. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. And I think a lot of people, even people without serious problems or serious trauma in their life, are well suited to this as well. Is there anything else that we have not discussed where you think that you would be remiss if you didn't mention? You know, I look forward to having you on the podcast because I want to know more about your story. I want to know about the battles that you wage in your head because you strike me as a guy that is very intelligent and focused and knows what he wants and is probably too hard on himself sometimes. I could be wrong. Me? No. <laughs> I want to know more about you. So I look forward to having you on my podcast. It's different than our usual affair, but I think it's very useful. And there's a certain demographic of people that have ask me questions that are just so far over my head with respect to this stuff that we've talked about and touched on here today because I like to speak from experience. And so me telling somebody who says, I'm depressed, I feel lazy, to just use your calendar more. It's just so like, hey buddy, you're missing the point. And so I try not to do that, but I also wanna balance that with not ignoring people with serious issues that write in. So this has been very useful. Yeah, because you, you never know. It could be clinical depression and no amount of calendars are going to get rid of clinical depression. So it's hard to know unless you start trying things. The thing that I see screws up kids more than any other thing. It's not physical violence. It's not sexual abuse. The most common thing is people that just don't spend time with their kids and I see workaholism as 
a really, really big problem in this country because it's not talked about. And I think the workaholic can kind of kid themselves into saying, this is all for my family, when sometimes maybe it's also maybe more about their ego than they're willing to admit because their children and their spouses are paying a, a price for it. And I see it in the guests on my show. For a kid to be screwed up, they don't have to be beaten or yelled at or sexually abused. A parent just not being present in their life, just kind of half listening. You want to screw your kid up? Half listen to them a lot and then occasionally do something nice for them. Nothing will screw them up like that. But the good news is it's never too late to rebuild a relationship with them. That was one of the things that I definitely wanted to mention. So I know you have a lot of high achievers that listen to your program. I'm not saying don't reach for the stars and go for that great thing. Just try to keep a balance and remember that your kids want your attention more than they want a fancy car. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, man. Jason, something a bit different this week, you know, a bit different than usual in that he just comes out swinging. He's just like, here's all my stuff. And I like that about him. Yeah, yeah. Paul doesn't really live in the shallow end of the pool, if you know what I mean. He goes deep quick. Yeah. And it was a little in the beginning. I was like, oh, we just that escalated quickly. Right. And I like that, though. (laughs) Yeah, I like the real talk. Great big thank you to Paul Gilmartin. His show is called The Mental Illness Happy Hour. Of course, that'll be linked up in the show notes for this episode. And if you enjoyed this, don't forget to thank Paul on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well. Tweet at me your number one takeaway from Paul Gilmartin. I'm at The Art of Charm on Twitter. I'm also on Instagram at Jordan Harbinger. And as usual, we have worksheets for today's episode, so you can make sure you've got all the key takeaways from Paul Gilmartin. This one, of course, a lot of deep stuff here, and a lot of stuff you can readily apply, even if you're not sure how or where to start. That link to the worksheets is in the show notes at theartofcharm.com slash podcast. I also want to encourage you to join us in our challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. The challenge is about improving your networking and your connection skills and inspiring other people to develop personal and professional relationships with you. It's free, it's a great way to get the ball rolling, get some forward momentum, and apply the things you're learning here on the show to your life every day. We'll also send you our fundamentals toolbox that I mentioned earlier on the show, which includes great practical stuff ready to apply right out of the box on reading body language, nonverbal communication, influence, persuasion tactics, and everything else that we teach here on the show and at The Art of Charm. This will make you a better networker, a better connector, and a better thinker. That's all at theartofcharm.com slash challenge. This episode of The Art of Charm was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor, and the show notes on the website are by Robert Fogarty. Transcriptions by transcriptionoutsourcing.net. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. If you can think of anyone who might benefit from the episode you've just heard, please pay us the highest compliment and pay it forward by sharing this episode with that person. It only takes a moment and great ideas are meant to be shared. So share the show with friends and enemies. Leave everything and everyone better than you found them.